0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. For in it we learn of you. And in it we learn of your character across history, played out in history. And we learn of it, we learn in it how you will deal with us. And so we pray that we would learn of you this morning you would open our minds, our hearts, our eyes, our ears, to see and hear and know you and love you. We pray you do this all for your glory. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning we've come to the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel. And it is clear that a change has taken place here. Chapters 1 through 6 contain court tales that explore the possibility of God's people living in a foreign and hostile country, and the outlook is generally positive. The conclusion one draws from reading the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is that faithfulness is vindicated in this life. Obedience makes a Christian impervious to oppression. And in this way, the stories of Daniel 1 through 6 almost feel prepackaged and tidy, perhaps even, dare I say, unrealistic. Yes, Daniel and his buddies were thrown to the hungry lions or into the raging furnace, but they always emerged unscathed and were subsequently uh, elevated to high posts within the foreign government that had once opposed them. Their obstinacy in faith never went unrewarded, but was actually rather admired by the pagan king who would end up surprisingly expressing support for the God who had previously made him feel threatened. The patterns of these stories together offer an affirmative answer to the question that the book of Daniel is attempting to answer. Can God's people live faithfully in a foreign and hostile land? And chapters 1 through 6 say, yes, they can. And Daniel and his friend are prime examples. But beginning in chapter 7, the the neat and and tidy stories of the first six chapters are threatened by the apocalyptic visions that fill up the last six chapters of the book. And what we will find in chapters 7 through 12 is that vindication for the faithful is still promised, but not necessarily in this life. God is still involved in history, but there are times where his hand is hidden from us and chaos seems to have won the day. If you are looking for vindication, then you will need to set your hopes not on this life, but on the one to come. These last six chapters of the book of Daniel are much more pessimistic than the first six chapters. But the two do not contradict each other. Rather, when taken together, they provide a a fuller picture of the life of faith in this world. These two poles balance one another out so that Christians reading this book come away with a realistic expectation for the life of faith lived out in a broken world and are therefore neither given to despair nor surprised by the many difficulties in this life. Throughout scripture we we see this sort of balancing act taking place. The positioning of, of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes back to back is a prime example. In Proverbs, everything works out as it should. It's neat and tidy. Train up children in the right way, and when old, they will not stray. It's as simple as that. But flip open the book of Ecclesiastes, and the cries of meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless, balance out Proverbs' mathematical approach to life. Sometimes two plus two doesn't equal four in life. Sometimes you do all the right things with your kids and they stray anyway. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless. The two Ecclesiastes and Proverbs are not contradicting each other. They are balancing one another. Just as Daniel 7 through 12 is balancing Daniel 1 through 6. One scholar writes that the, the difference in ethos in in the two parts of Daniel does not come from contradictory worldviews. Rather, it represents two ends of the spectrum of the experience of the godly person living in a pagan society. Sometimes it's possible to be faithful to one's principles and fully involved in the society. At other times, the society can be so hostile that the principles are trampled on and the godly may be crushed. Chapters 7-12 through tell the story of of the other times when the godly are crushed. And in order to communicate this environment of hostility and chaos, apocalyptic imagery is engaged. In chapter 7, the story is pretty strange. Daniel is the one dreaming now, and in his night vision, he saw four disturbing creatures climbing up out of the sea. A lion who had wings like an eagle, a bear with with tusks or, or bones protruding from his mouth, a leopard with four heads and four wings on its back, and a a fourth beast that had iron teeth and ten horns, and one horn had human eyes on it, and a mouth with which it it was arrogantly boasting. It's a strange scene indeed. But what does it mean? That's the question we have to answer when we encounter these deformed beasts in Daniel 7. What does it mean? And the meaning of this vision is typically answered by identifying who these monsters are intended to represent historically. And this is understandably a common approach. Because when Daniel pursues an explanation for his vision, he's told in verse 17 that these four great beasts are four kings that shall arise out of the earth. And so the search is on to match the beast with the king and it's a topic of de- debate among scholars but the the winged lion is typically identified as as Nebuchadnezzar in the king, kingdom of Babylon the the tusked bear is typically identified as the kingdom of media the the four-headed and four-winged leopard is typically identified with persia and the unidentified but equally terrifying beast is typically identified with macedonia and with the four beasts matched to their corresponding kingdoms the Conversation about the meaning of this passage is able to shed the disturbing visions and and turn instead to a a much more manageable, less evocative topic of kings and kingdoms. The form in which these kingdoms are introduced is discarded once we know the referent to which these ghastly monsters are pointing and we more comfortably discuss Babylon, Media, Persia, and Macedonia rather than having to try to find meaning in the vision of deformed animals coming up out of the sea. But if the goal was merely to get us to talk about the historical kingdoms of Babylon, Media, Persia, and Macedonia, then why introduce them in this way? Why engage the apocalyptic and include descriptions of deformed beasts emerging from chaotic waters? This apocalyptic imagery is employed because there's value in the form of it itself. One scholar explains, the individual images in the visions are not like the ciphers in a code whose meaning is exhausted once the code has been broken. Symbols draw on the images, ideas, and stereotypes of a culture and their associated sentiments and values. Therefore, they carry resonances and have a a feel about them that simple ciphers do not have. And as a result, they have an evocative quality that goes beyond any simply, simplistic this-is-that interpretation. The images of these apocalyptic animals aren't to be tossed aside once we, dis- once we decipher the historical referent for each animal. Because there's value in the imagery itself. It evokes something from you. These apocalyptic images with all their cultural significance elevate the history of Daniel 7 to the level of theology. As one scholar writes, the essence of the vision is not a series of predictions about historical events, but a theology of history. What is being communicated here is not a historical timeline, but a treatise on the sovereignty of God throughout all of history. The question that Daniel 7 seeks to answer is not who are these animals, but who is this God? The goal of the Christian reading Daniel 7 is not to plot out a history and so become predictors of the future, but to be reassured that we belong to an eternal God who is stronger than all the most intimidating forces of evil in this world, even when that evil feels ultimate and is allowed to arise and devour many bodies as the bear was commanded to do but in order to grasp the theological import of these disturbing images we must consider how that how uh, their original audience the ancient near eastern world understood them one scholar writes culturally based symbolic imagery communicates in ways beyond what can be expressed in simple prose the symbols carry a color a feel and emotional charge that arise from their cultural role. This makes them a powerful form of communication within their original context, but a puzzling one outside of it. And indeed, the vision of these emer- emerging monsters strikes us Western modern Americans as puzzling, which is why we typically settle for an interpretation of Daniel 7 that's merely historical, but within the cultural context of the ancient Near East, these misshapen beasts coming out of the sea conveyed a theological meaning that eclipsed the historical moment so that the history put, uh, became almost inconsequential to the meaning of the passage. And to gauge the cultural impact of these images, to, to measure the, the feel of these passages, we have to look no further than Daniel's response to the dream. He wasn't puzzled. He was terrified. Twice we get his reaction. In verse 15, he admits that his spirit was anxious within him and he was alarmed by what he had seen. In verse 28, he is described as being greatly alarmed and his color left him. These images in their cultural context inspired fear, not puzzlement. And there are many reasons for this. And the first is that these The the images of these hybrid animals representing the powers of the world would have been greatly disturbing to any Jewish person in light of the law of God stated specifically in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. There it was explained that any contact with unclean animals made God's people likewise unclean and therefore unacceptable before God any animal that was misshapen or hybrid in some way was to be avoided and here daniel's being told that this is going to be the character of the rulers of this world there are lions with wings bears bears with tusks leopards with multiple heads and beasts with iron teeth and talking horns these are the leaders the environment in which god's people will live will make it feel like it's impossible to be faithful because the rulers who are set in control over them are opposed to the life of purity that God demands of His people, both for themselves and for those whom they rule. Faithfulness will be costly and difficult under these beastly, impure men. It's no wonder that Daniel was filled with dread at the prospect of living under these circumstances for the foreseeable future. His experience would be similar to ours or to yours when you realize that this whole coronavirus thing wasn't going to be gone in three months. And it may very well be at least 18 months of living in isolation and suspicion without the reassurance of a handshake or the warmth of a hug or feedback from any of the many emotions a mouth can convey. This is the sort of dread Daniel was experiencing only on a more deeply personal level because his faith was what made him vulnerable to the intolerant rule of godly men who will always hold power in this world. It's true that the four hideous beasts served as reference to historical kingdoms, but the apocalyptic portrayal of these kings infuses them with a timeless character and expands their significance beyond the mere historical moment in which they lived. It isn't just Babylon, Media, Persia, and Macedonia who are going to make it difficult for Christians, but there will be rulers through all of time and across all of the world who will be just as beastly. To repeat a a quote from above, sometimes it's possible to be faithful to one's principles and fully involved in the society. At other times, the society can be hostile, that the principles are trampled on and the godly may be crushed. These ghastly monsters were Daniel's warning that he should prepare for the latter. He should prepare to be crushed. But there's a second cultural reason why Daniel responded in fear to the apocalyptic images of Daniel 7. The second truth these images conveyed to the original hearers is that the leaders of this world are not just impure from a religious perspective, but they can, in fact, be evil and agents of chaos. This conclusion is drawn from the significance of the sea within the ancient Near Eastern worldview. The sea was a place of chaos and a a source of evil. One scholar writes that the sea was the domain of all that is opposed to God. Residents of the ancient Near East were terrified of the ocean. It's filled with dangerous creatures, creatures that are opposed to order and the sanity of God. But in Daniel's dream, the boundaries of the oceans are no longer holding these creatures back. Evil and chaos are creeping into the world, influencing everyone from the common person to even those who fill the highest seats of government to live, live lives in opposition to God and to his people. Considered within their cultural context, the disturbing images of Daniel 7 are intended to convey a sober picture of the world that would last beyond the life of Daniel and transcend the mere this is that historical correspondences between king and beast. In contrast with the neat narratives of Daniel 1 through 6, where the righteous are always vindicated, Daniel 7 provides us with a theological picture of the world in which evil and ungodliness and chaos rule the day, and God's people are crushed under the weight of it all. This is the world in its broken state which we currently live in as Christians. At times, faith comes easy, and at other times, life feels unbearable. And it becomes impossible to believe in a God who's both good and powerful. Fluctuations between these two poles can happen at the, the corporate level, where we're all struggling together, or more often at the personal level, where one person may be feeling comfortable in life. But the person sitting right next to you, just six feet away, is trying not to drown and give up hope. Daniel 7 makes room for this person with its honest, albeit forbidding, view of life in this broken world that at times feels as though chaos has carried the day. But Daniel 7 is not without hope altogether. Because even the bleakest moments in the Christian life are not without hope altogether. There is hope to be had for the present and hope for the end. And Daniel 7 gives us cause for both kinds of hope. And the first kind of hope, the hope for the present, is woven subtly into the vision of the monstrous creatures. Each of these creatures, terrible as they are, do not act independently of God. The first creature, ferocious as a lion and swift as an eagle, has its wings plucked from it. And is humbled so that it assumes the unimposing status of a mere man who walks on two legs. The second and third creatures have only what is given to them. The bear is given bodies to devour and commanded to do so. The leopard is given dominion. They are all terrifying animals, but they are all also animals on a leash. And it is God who holds that leash. Even the most chaotic forces who have been given room to run still do not lie outside of his ultimate control. And one scholar explains well the dynamic that this creates. And whether we like it or not, he writes, or understand it or not, the Most High has given a measure of sovereignty to human rulers. As a result, from time to time, history does seem to be in the grip of chaotic, bestial forces as has been all too true at various times and places in the last hundred years. At times, God's people are devastated. But it is also true that God is actually at work in some way, even in seemingly chaotic forces of history. This is, of course, something that the Hebrew prophets had said repeatedly. Yahweh spoke to Isaiah of Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff of my fury. And reveals to Habakkuk that the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation, are doing his work. Of Cyrus the Persian, he says, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. The prophets did not always find it easy to understand how Yahweh could use these pagan nations to do his work. Isaiah cries out, strange is his deed, alien is his work. Habakkuk is appalled at the thought of Yahweh's using the Babylonians and cries out for an explanation. He's given not a simple answer, but a call to faith. Because there are no simple answers for the Christian who encounters and is overwhelmed by evil on the loose in this world. But there is a call to trust that whatever you are experiencing, it is on a leash that God holds in his hand. He has not lost control of you or your situation. He sees you. With one hand, he holds the leash. And with the other, he holds you closely to himself. He is in control. And he is with you, no matter how alone you feel. This is a truth that is perhaps manifested most powerfully in the person of Jesus Christ. Because even though he was a man, he was still able to calm the raging sea. The source of evil and chaos to the ancient mind with a mere command to be still. The sea only rages in your life until he breaks his silence. Because even as a man, he remains in control. And as a God, he demonstrates his solidarity with us by giving himself up to suffering as well. God suffers with us. He's not removed, dispassionately ordering the world from a distance, but he joins us in our experience of evil on the loose and ungodliness in our rulers. And although he's not with us in person now, he has sent the Holy Spirit so that we might respond to his call to faith when the answers aren't simple or obvious and the world seems to have descended into chaos. He's with us and he's in control. This is the hope for the present. But he also gives us hope for the future. Because the story told in Daniel 7 ends with judgment and victory. Verses 9 and 10 interrupt the arrogant boasts of the horn on the head of the fourth beast in order to introduce a courtroom scene. The court sat in judgment and the verdict was death for the fourth beast and an end to the reign of the other three see, God will judge the world, and justice will be established. All the evil and pain that we have borne in this life will be undone and healed. And in verses 13 and 14, we are told that Jesus himself, the one, like a human being, coming with the clouds of heaven, will be our only king, a pure and holy king. On this earth he will establish an eternal kingdom in which evil is absent. The beasts are destroyed. The sea is calm. And we are restored in grace to our position as kings and queens in this world. The holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom. Our story ends just as it began. With a command to be fruitful and multiply and rule over the world for good. And it's a bit poetic that our story should end with the creation of beauty and order in a world where we have experienced such chaos. But God will give us the opportunity to participate in our own vindication and redemption. Therefore, we wait, with, we wait for him with this future hope in our hearts. When Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts 1, he was taken up with the clouds. And the angels told the disciples that just as you have seen him go, he will come again. One like a human being, the son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He will come to the ancient one and be presented before him. And to him will be given dominion and glory and, kingdom, and kingship that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Therefore we watch the clouds and we work expectantly in this chaotic world to, bid, to build now the kingdom that he will only expand and fulfill when he comes again with the clouds. And so we look to the clouds and we say, Come quickly, Lord Jesus.